everyone. Um, like a lot of you this week, I am thinking about the tremendous director, Peter Bogdanovich, who we lost this week at the age of 82. And I was thinking about how grateful I am that we got to speak to Peter when we did our episode on The Last Picture Show. Um, it was a conversation that I really treasured. I thought it was like fascinating to talk to him about his life, about his career. I really appreciate him taking the time to talk to us as we were embarking on our project to go through all of the films on the AFI Top 100 list. So because of that, we thought it was right and good to bring that episode of The Last Picture Show out of the vault so we can all listen to it again this week. Um, Our conversation here actually took place uh, exactly two years ago this month. And I don't know, I just want to say personally for me, it meant a lot for Peter to take the time um, to come and to be so open. And and I mean, this is a guy who was asked a lot of questions about his life and yet always made every single conversation sound interesting and revelatory. And there's a gazillion podcasts out there that I also want to point you to to listen to. Karina Longworth did a great one on Polly Platt that gives you a very full and complicated picture of Bogdanovich. There's also The Plot Thickens by TCM, another big epic place. I'm glad that Peter Bogdanovich lived long enough to see the world of podcasts and to see his own career analyzed with, you know, I think kind of the 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 honest, maybe sometimes brutal lens that he would have respected. So... Raise a glass to Peter. You can even make it like a homegrown Texas beer if you want in honor of the last picture show. And have a listen. The year is 1971. Tupac Shakur and Mariah Carey were born into this world. Email was invented. Rent was only $150 a month. A stamp was eight cents. A movie ticket was $1.50. Jim Morrison was found dead in a bathtub in Paris. The Walt Disney World theme park opened. And FedEx was started by Fred Smith. Other AFI movies that came out this year were The French Connection and A Clockwork Orange, and this week's movie is The Last Picture Show. Amy, tell us who's in The Last Picture Show. What's it about? The Last Picture Show. It is directed by Peter Bogdanovich, based on a book by Larry McMurtry. People might know him as the novelist who wrote Lonesome Dove. It is about a small town in Texas that is slowly dying. There are a group of young boys graduating high school. They all have a crush on Sybil Shepard. There's a group of older women watching over these boys, initiating some of them into manhood. We're wondering about what happened to their own youth and ambitions and hopes and dreams. And all of the rise and fall of this town is represented by the movie theater, which we see in the opening shot as open and which we see in the closing shot as closed. Uh, You have Timothy Bottoms and Jeff Bridges as the main two boys, Sonny and Dwayne. You have Sybil Shepard as JC, the town beauty. You have Ben Johnson, a veteran actor with John Ford, playing uh, Sam the Lion. You have Cloris Leachman, Ellen Burstyn, and Eileen Brennan as this amazing trio of middle-aged women who kind of rule over the town. And then you just got a bunch of other fascinating people showing up, like Randy Quaid as a really rich kid who's an awful dork. What creeps me out about this movie is how much I worry that I have in common with Peter Bogdanovich. (laughs) Just because, like, Peter Bogdanovich, uh, the director, is one of the filmmakers who came to filmmaking through being a film critic. He's one of the critic-turned-artists. I actually have no interest in making films. Yeah, and he even wrote his first film under a pseudonym because he didn't want to have people know that it was a critic who was writing a film. I totally get that. Part of why I don't ever want to make a film is what if I do and it's bad. It like discounts everything I've ever done with my life. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we can't all be Roger Ebert showing up and making Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is just singular, and then going home to your critic job. Uh, But yeah, so Peter Bogdanovich, he um, wrote for so many people. He wrote for like Esquire, he wrote for Village Voice, he wrote for everybody. What I think is really special about him and is a good way of getting into The Last Picture Show itself is that 
we're really seeing this generational shift of here are the directors of the 70s who were raised on the classic movies of the 1930s. Right. Like here are the people who were weaned on all of the old John Ford stuff. Orson Welles was his huge idol. Uh, Howard Hawks, William Wyler, Billy Wilder. He soaked up all of these as a child and then is now honoring all of them in his films and you know, knowing all of them as a journalist and like becoming this kind of synergy of old and new as we move into the 70s. But I would argue that at a time where people are making very different films, he's kind of looking a little bit backwards. I mean, this is a year where you're seeing, you know, bigger, splashier 70s style films, right? This is where Scorsese and Coppola are kind of coming into their own. And he is making something that definitely fits in the bracket before him, but yet has some of the dramatic, naturalistic elements of the 70s. I you think know? by that you mean he could not show this many boobs if he had actually made this in the 30s. That's <laughs> what you're saying, right? <laughs> well, I mean, look, the movie is shot in black and white, and the reason why it's shot in black and white is because Bogdanovich was an acolyte of Orson Welles. And Orson Welles, uh, and he kind of conferred before they shot this movie, and he's like, you will never get the shots that you want in color. It will, it won't, you won't get that kind of read of the face. And this movie is so much about faces and eyes. And it's a very sexual movie in a way because there's a lot of people having sex, but it's not a very sensual movie, if that makes sense. It seems yeah. very matter of fact. And I think you see a lot of that through the way that these faces are photographed in these moments, whether it's kissing or during sex, you know, you're you're really like existing on these people's faces. And I do think that black and white, I don't know, makes a better performance. I think Orson Welles was the one who said like every actor is better in black and white. Yeah. I mean, I think this movie is to sex what violence is to what we've been talking about in the last couple of we weeks. You know, like it's obsessed with sex. Everybody in this film is obsessed with sex all the time. But he makes it unglamorous. You know, right. he sees the he concentrates more on like the fumbling and the awkward squeezing and the the pauses when people are done and how uncomfortable it is for everybody. And even some of the matter of fact nature of it, like that scene when they go to like make out in the car in the beginning of the film and she just takes off her bra and hangs it on the rearview mirror. It's just sort of like it's not like the passionate style of, you know, Hollywood romance. Yeah, there's really, I mean, out of all of the characters in this film, there's only one actress who gets the passionate framing, and that's Sybil Shepherd, the town beauty, who I feel like, I don't know if you felt this like watching it, but every time uh, Peter Bogdanovich looks at Sybil Shepherd in this film, the camera just seems totally different than it does looking at everybody else. You know, she kind of gets a close-up and it looks like a magazine cover, not just because she's Sybil Shepherd, but there's just something. Like, the framing, the lighting, the adoration, she's always this goddess. Right. And everyone else is like, they're fine. Well, I mean, you could argue, I think, part of the reason that that is happening is because he was having an affair with Sybil Shepherd during this movie. It's very public, very out uh, affair. You know, Sybil Shepherd was dating Jeff Bridges for like a hot minute. He went off to fulfill his military service during the shooting of this film. And when he came back, uh, Bogdanovich and Sybil Shepherd were together, and which is kind of a an interesting dynamic on set because not only is he the director and she's the lead actress, but also his wife, Bogdanovich's wife, Polly Platt, was the costume uh, supervisor on the film, uh, and 
Am I saying that right? The costume supervisor or costume? Yeah, I mean, she was costume supervisor. She was kind of everything. All right, she was sort of the everything. She she helped with the costume. She did the hair. She did Sybil Shepherd's hair while Sybil Shepherd is having an affair with her husband, and everybody knows about it. But she like she's part of why this film got made in the first place. You know, she worked with him very closely. She was like an artistic partner as much as anything Polly was. She was the person that he gave the book to to say, should I make this into a movie? She was there the whole time. She catered lunch. I mean, it's so then but it he feels has like an affair. How interesting. This is like life imitating art because, you know, a film is a small community of people coming together to do something. And this is about a very small town and everyone knows the inner workings and there are affairs going on and unspoken things. And so in, in many respects, it, it may have positively influenced the film because a lot of those feelings and a lot of that gossip, uh, a lot of that anger is kind of right there on the surface. I would well, imagine. I was thinking about that when I heard this one line in the film. The football coach uh, says this one line in front of Sonny Crawford, who's having an affair with the football coach's wife. Um, you can't tell in that scene if the coach is only talking about football to the referee, if he's only talking about football to the referee in front of the man that he knows has been boning his wife. Or if it's Bogdanovich being like, yeah, I'm sorry. I was having an affair with Sybil. I'm actually not that sorry. Now listen, see if we can't stretch that goddamn thing a little. You know, a man never ought to cheat unless it's for a good cause. I mean, I heard that and I was like, okay, Bogdanovich, there are so many layers to that line. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because in a way, it is a good cause that, you know, he's cheating with the coach's wife because the coach is gay, right? The coach is not fulfilling his wife in that way. They're, they have no romance between them. Are you saying that you don't think that? Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I've heard readings that the coach is gay yeah. and apparently I think Bogdanovich might have said so on a commentary track maybe. Well, I mean, I think... But I didn't get that watching this at all and I didn't know what you thought. Well, when he taps that boy on the ass uh, in gym class, they share this look and there's something in that moment. And then as we see the character of Ruth, played by Cloris Luchman, who just is amazing in this film, she's so lonely. She's so isolated. She's never really with her husband. We see a lot of people with their partners and switching partners and moving around. We never see her with him. And I think that's what they're trying to convey here is not that she is bored, but she is in a a loveless relationship because her husband is not satisfying her in, in any way. They're not right together. You know what I thought it was? What? I've always just thought in the back of my head, and I was watching it again this time being like, do you really have a reason for thinking this? I keep thinking that the wife, Ruth Popper, the coach's wife, is dying and has some bad news. And that's why she's sort of crying at the doctor and he can't really reach her. He oh. can't really comfort her. And so she's sort of like, fuck it. And it's not even so much about her husband in that relationship. It's just about, I need to live while I'm alive. Well, I had a lot of thoughts about this doctor's appointment. When it first came up, I was like, is he driving her to have an abortion? Like, that was my first thought. Like, he didn't want to be a part of it because he's a, a religious man. I'm, I'm putting all of this onto it. I'm just trying to make sense of it. And then I remembered that scene where he tapped that boy on the ass or slapped that boy on the ass. And then I'm like, oh, maybe he feels like if he goes to a doctor's appointment with her, or maybe it's therapy, that he'll kind of be found out. But if he can stay away from that doctor's office, he won't have to be forced to answer questions, even if it is like, you know, when was the last time you had sex? So I kind of felt like by bringing uh, Timothy Bottoms' character into it, it's just someone who 
to care for her. And that's why she kind of blossoms is because no one is tending to her in a way. Yeah, I mean, she goes through this big costume transformation, sort of that also is like a rise and fall, you know, just sort of like the town where she is so pinned up when you first see her. She's in a boxy suit jacket. Her hair is back. She's got a little prim hat on. She is just prim, 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 and she looks very old. Yeah. And the film does, you know, this magic reveal of her where they start to put her hair down. They start to put her in kind of Donna Reed overly, I think a little overly feminine dresses, but it's sweet to watch her dress up so much. And you get to see that Cloris Leachman, true story, like, was in the running for Miss America. Like, she competed in the Miss America pageant. She's a beautiful woman. Yeah. And then the film takes that kind of lushness and then makes it disheveled. You know, her hair, the last time we see her, her hair is crazy. She's in a bathrobe. She's not all prim. She's completely on the other end. She sort of passed from prim to put together beautifully to wild woman. What I think is so beautiful about this movie is you're seeing the future and the past of this town. We're talking about that as far as influences with Bogdanovich. Like he's tipping his hat to the past, you know, and he's also opening up his film to the future in the, in the new style. And here you're watching young people trying to figure out who they are, what they're doing. We see the future through all the old characters. It's, it's kind of really beautifully balanced. I mean, Sybil Shepard and Cloris Leachman could be the same person, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of, I mean, more Sybil Shepard is like her mother, you know, she married wealthy, but it's unhappy and she's cheating on this man. You know, like, I think that these are all very much like the ghosts of Christmas, you know, future in, in many ways, like they're looking at themselves. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, right? I mean, yeah. that they keep being put into the shoes of the older person. You know, you have Sam the Lion, Ben Johnson, yeah. who's such an icon of this town. And you kind of slowly realize through the film, holds the town together. Like, he doesn't just own the pool hall. He doesn't just own the movie theater. Like, he owns the coffee shop, the diner where everybody hangs out. He owns all of it, even though he doesn't seem like a potter type. He doesn't seem like a No, like I mean, a mobile. to me, he is exactly the Jimmy Stewart of it's a wonderful life in a different way. I mean, I, I thought about It's a Wonderful Life a lot in watching this movie because there's this idea of like wanting to escape the town, the town being held together. And you're right. Like I was not, I'm nodding so much because I was thinking of that too, that there is so much this potter must escape yeah. kind of pressure. Like, can we get out? And it almost feels sci-fi. Like they can drive to the edge of town, but they always end up getting right pulled back. I know. It's like, even at the end, like Timothy Bottoms character is like, I'm gone. And, and, and. It it is it, it's it's very cabin in the woods if you will like they are they are in this kind of experiment of this is you that you have to stay here, um, and then you also get the it's a wonderful lifeness of when Sam dies really suddenly he gives his pool hall to Sunny sort mm-hmm. of saying which I think is a beautiful gift but also like you are now stuck here right there's a little yeah. bit of that to it anchoring him and also you get to see the it's a wonderful lifeness of. Without that character, without the Jimmy Stewart character, the town falls apart. The movie theater closes down. Everybody's broke. Everybody's sad. There is no glue holding that family together that it was this makeshift family of the town. Well, who do you think the main character of this movie is? I mean, to me, I'm most fascinated by Sybil Shepherd and her mom. But I do think the main character is Sonny, right? Well, I thought the movie is about Sonny, but I realized, I think this is much more a coming-of-age story of Sybil Shepard. I think that her character is the most interesting. I, I think that Sonny, it never seems like he kind of sparks. Everyone else 
Sparks, whether it's Jeff Bridges who who goes off, gets a fancy car, even goes to Korea, like he's making choices. Sybil Shepard is making choices, like she gets out of her rut, like she's just not going to be with Jeff Bridges and she's going to, you know, experiment. And in in many ways, it's an incredibly feminist piece because there's really no judgment to her character for exploring her sexuality. It, and and it's, it's not treated in a precious way either. You know, I thought that was like a boldly feminist statement, you know, for 1971 to show a character like this. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, wait, I have a question for you, though. Mm-hmm. There's two cuts of this. Did you see the cut that's the director's cut yes. with the pool hall scene? Yes. Okay, yeah. Because, yeah, when you, like, that pool hall scene, what happens in the pool hall scene for people who haven't seen that or, you know, it was left out and then Bogdanovich put it back in, is that she gets picked up one night while she's bored at home, turning into her mother, sitting on the same spot as, of the couch as yes. her mother is when her mother gets drunk and watches TV. By the way, every time a TV shows up in the movie, it's basically Peter Bogdanovich being like, TV sucks, man, watch movies. Like, every <laughs> time. Like, he's always saying that... Any character who's watching TV, automatically their life is like a disaster. That's like his tell. Nobody happy watches TV in this movie. So she's watching TV and her mother's lover, the one that her mother like is really mean to. Played Um, by Clue Gallagher, who I have a little connection with in the sense that uh, I actually kind of worked with him because his son directed me in a movie, a classic film called Piranha 3 Double D. So I have a little connection to him, but I, in watching him in this- It's been so long since I've seen, I haven't haven't seen that movie since I started looking at your face all the time. uh, Piranha 3D, (laughs) uh, I I think is a a classic. (laughs) Piranha 3 Double D, I had some more issues with, Uh, but uh, a lovely experience nonetheless. But I thought Clue Gallagher is amazing in this movie. Like, I love this, you know, this kind of Marlboro man. Like, he's like, he doesn't say much, but I feel like he is like the personification of of who you would kind of be attracted to and who you maybe cheat with. Like, that scene. And who would destroy your life. Yes. 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 I mean, like, that scene where they go to the, like, the Christmas party and, like, he goes with his wife. And then he, like, basically just ditches his wife to dance with his mistress. It's like. What is going on? I mean, and again, that's very last uh, picture show production. But go ahead. Yes, but go ahead. Yes. So uh, Sybil Shepherd has an affair with her her mother's, her mother's lover. Lover. And yes. And, then, and the, then he's totally callous to her. Do you think he's callous to her because he's guilty? I don't think he's deep enough to be guilty. Really? No. I thought he felt really shit about himself. Like, it's like, I just had sex with my, like, m- my mistress's daughter. Like, what am I doing? I don't think he cares that much i think he's like oh a younger model well i don't want her to get attached to me get out I, or maybe i just assume the worst of people that's possible but what i really find fascinating about the scene where sybil shepherd lays down on that pool table uh and they you know have sex sort of out of nowhere is her expression on that you know she her eyes are really kind of cold when he puts her on the pool table she's not into him really she's sort of just into the experience of doing something bizarre because she is so bored I think it's a little bit like a salad buffet. There's no reason not to try something because it's, well, it's there. I'll try it. Like, and that's what she kind of does in the film. She's like, I'll kind of be with this guy. I'll kind of be with this guy. She's just kind of seeing what's out there based on what her mom said. Like, you, you should have sex to realize it's not that big of a deal. But I would also argue that I know it's 1971, so you can show more than what they did. But he almost looks like he's just lying on her. There's no even thrust or motion on him. And I didn't know if that was the choice of the time or just to kind of make it feel flat and and kind of devoid of even the motions of sex. Well, what's interesting is 
Bogdanovich does give us this POV shot of him from Sybil Shepard's face. And it's very clearly from her looking up yes. at him suddenly. Yeah. And there's this abruptness to it, this kind of terror. Like he almost looks a little bit like a big bad wolf monster yeah. coming at her. And I think it's so interesting that this is a movie where sometimes I watch it and I'm like, I don't know how much Bogdanovich really gets inside the head of what it is to be like a bored small town girl. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, I like that he makes at least us go inside the head of a bored right. small town girl. He's not doing it so much from Abilene's point of view as look at this. I got Sybil Shepherd. It's more like, what am I doing? But anyway, on all of that note, Abilene is kind of a monster. I like that we get a glimpse of him as a monster. And let's just hear Ellen Burstyn insult him really fast because that would make me feel good. Abilene, you, you sleep? No. You like company? Well, I thought I'd drive out see how my well is coming. Mm, drill hard. Better at all wells anyway. Click. <laughs> By the way, you hear the TV in the background of that, and I just want to play the tiniest clip of right before that because you hear the TV announcer just talking about all the different ways you can see TV. And I like the fact that what we hear on TV isn't even entertainment. Bogdanovich is just being like, look how unspespecial TV is. No, look at the see, way that he presents how it's just whatever. It's on all the time. I want to I, I have a, a thought on that. Let me because I think it's actually different than that. Really? Yes. Right. I, I, I think that every time you see TV, it's promising like wealth or make a million dollars. It's it's the fantasy that's out there. It's it's giving you a chance to maybe get out of my boring and dull life. I, like let's take a listen. Let's see if all let's right. take a listen. You're with us on Strike Rich and the audience with a heart. Say if you like seeing one of our audience with a heart, I'd like to remind you that we're on television every day. That's right, every day, Monday through Friday at 11:30 a.m. New York time. So every morning, Monday through Friday, we're on radio on another network. Just look at your paper from time and station. And every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. Right you see, like, that show is called Strike It Rich. It's in New York. I don't know. I think there's some idea of, like, I think there's something very present day about this film as well. I mean, this is a movie that is shot in the 70s, taking place in the 50s. But I think it feels oddly timeless because we're in a time where small towns are closing up. You know, the big megastores have moved to town. You know, mom and pop shops are are getting fewer and fewer. And I'm not saying that the TV is FOMO, but it's like the idea of like, oh, there's something else out there that I should be doing, but I'm here, I'm scrolling, I'm in, I'm just... Here you, on Instagram at 9, 10, basically anytime you look at your phone, stay yeah. at Instagram. Well, yeah, there is some element to that. It, it kind of like... It, it depresses you. It is kind of making you upset. It's like, why am I not in New York at 1130? Why am I not striking it rich? When I thought the title strike it rich was interesting because what popped in my head is just they are literally an oil country where the yeah. people they know are striking it rich. Absolutely. Where even the waitress that I really, really love, Genevieve, talks about how her husband had a shot at the well and wound up not taking it. And it's the well that wound up making Ellen Burstyn's family really rich. And that just sort of... I don't know, luck of the draw. Who's going to strike a rich from this dull, dull earth? And she's going to be serving cheeseburgers until, you know, uh, Timothy Bottoms' you know, grandchildren are there. Like, that, she's, everyone's kind of agreed to their lot in life. There are similarities in this film to uh, a movie that came out this year, Eighth Grade, which I really enjoyed a lot. Like, this idea of trying to figure out who you are. I mean, she's a little bit younger in eighth grade. Obviously, she's eighth grade. But I think it's a time when you are trying to figure out yourself. And and maybe it's happening earlier now because of, you know, the YouTube and, and 
the YouTube. They say the YouTube. Um, okay, Grandpa yeah. Sheer. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, because of YouTube and, and things like that, where you are forced to kind of have a social media personality in addition to your actual personality. And here are a bunch of people trying to figure out, especially the young people. And I, and the old people too, it's like, all right, well, I'm wealthy, but I'm not in love. I'm, you know, I'm married, but I'm lonely. And well, yeah, and what you're describing is a vision of the heartland. You know, mm-hmm. the thing that we've been seeing in the last couple Western films, even this idea of America, like this is the soil. This is where we come from. This right. is where we're our best. And in each one of these three films, the director's like, not so much. But I would argue, as the same way as we talk about TV, the film at the end, right? The film at the end of the movie is Red River, a John Wayne film. So right, again, the film that they're watching at the very end, yeah. Uh, the, last, the last picture show. And again, I just, uh, I'll hail the Zoodecahedron because I think it's drawing these parallels in a crazy way, is a film that's arguably taking place in their town or around them. It's in Texas, and it's showing this glorified version of Texas on the plains where your hometown is, and everyone's like, yeah, 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 and it couldn't be more opposite than what they're in. You know, you're, they're constantly seeing this better life, this other life and and whether or not they're achieving it or just giving into the shittiness of their own life is this really interesting push and pull. So I'd almost say that Bogdanovich is kind of hitting like any kind of visual entertainment is bad because it's creating a false perception. It's it's creating false hopes. Which is so crazy because Bogdanovich is like the crazy movie guy. I mean, Red River is Bogdanovich is one of his absolute favorite movies. But you're right. I absolutely think when you have this John Wayne, like the John Wayne, the John Wayne that we are talking about, we yeah. have like we haven't seen that much because we see cynical John Wayne so much. Yeah. That happy song about like cattle ranching and stuff. He's 100 percent saying that's not what Texas is anymore. Just like at the very beginning, the very first movie we see. The boys are on dates with their girls. And we have this like beautiful young father of the bride, Elizabeth Taylor, showing up who Sybil Shepherd can kind of compare to her, but right. when you see Sonny look at his date, you know, to me, the the kind of poorly, I feel so bad for this character, um, uh, Sharon Ulrich as uh, Charlene Duggs, he's looking at Charlene Duggs and being like, you are no Elizabeth Taylor. And I think that's also a really direct comment. Like, yeah. none of us have that girl, except for maybe Dwayne, who has Sybil yeah. Shepherd. From the men's point of view, if you could get that girl, you live that life. But you're getting that girl and many people, you know, have sex with her or have relationships with her, but they're not getting anything because she doesn't really have anything to offer ultimately because she's also trying to figure out herself. It's like you can't find fulfillment in the cover girl. You have to find kind of a fulfillment in yourself. Actually, you know what? Talking about the whole thing of like finding out who you are and the relationship that these characters have to the media – I had this thought when I was watching uh, Sybil Shepard, you know, what her character, what JC wants to do more than anything at the end is just like kind of be rich, sure, but really be in love, but also really just be in trouble. Be right. like the source of gossip. She loves it when like the boys get into a huge fist fight over her. She loves the She's idea. She's literally eating candy like watching a movie through yeah. through the windshield of this car watching this thing like it doesn't matter exactly and she loves the idea that they're going to get pulled over by the cops when they go to get married because yes. she doesn't really want to marry him she nope. wants to get annulled she wants the story she thinks it's fantastic and watching her this beautiful blonde shoulder length hair in the car being chased by the cops i thought oh my god 
it's kind of like Sybil Shepherd wants to be Bonnie Parker, the real Bonnie Parker. Yes. You know, she wants to be this woman on the run because you basically see this character repeated exactly again in Bonnie and Clyde. You know, this like small town yeah. Texas wow. girl wants to get in the car, wants to get out, wants to just have this hot love affair, you know, wants so much out of life. And I love this idea of like that Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde, you know, the Faye Dunaway Bonnie and Clyde is inspired by the movies. Yeah. And it feels like this Sybil Shepherd is inspired by like that Bonnie and Clyde. There's, there's like this yeah. Ouroboros of blonde women who are really bored, inspiring each other, but they keep getting in trouble about it. But it's, it's funny. I think about this thing in my life, uh, you know, I came up through the comedy scene and, you know, one of those rites of passage that a few of us had was like auditioning for SNL and, and getting in that thing. And I remember there were people like you that would really idolize like John Belushi. Like, oh my gosh, John Belushi did all this amazing stuff. And I felt like I had bumped into, you know, a handful, small, two, three people who are trying to live a life like John Belushi, but John Belushi wasn't trying to live a life like, I'm doing crazy stuff. He was just being John Belushi. I think the same thing for Bill Murray. You can try to be like Bill Murray, but you're not. if you're not Bill Murray, you can't be it. But it's like it's manufacturing what you think is cool. You can't copy cool and be cool, I guess, you know? And so I think she's so much, it's like, well, if I do this, will I feel something? If I do this, will I feel something? And, and I guarantee you, if, if that guy uh, who wouldn't sleep with her did marry her, she would be bo- she would She'd be, be miserable. miserable. There's no every choice is a dead end, just like uh, Netflix's Bandersnatch, which is now streaming. Bandersnatch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of to that point. I feel the same way sometimes about critics. Okay. Because I think there is this template of criticism that I feel like I see other critics or people who are interested in criticism emulate, which is like, I think of it in my head as checklist criticism. Like, right. oh, here's what everybody else watched and here's what everybody else says is great. And I have to go down this list and I have to make the same arguments about it. And I, whenever I see that in a young writer, you know, who's like asking me for advice or something, I want to be like, don't do that. Because then you're just going to wind up with the same opinions as everybody else. You're just emulating yeah. the people of the past and you get nowhere going that way. You have to travel and see things and bring your own feelings into criticism. You can't just have a library. A library gets you nowhere. Right. And I and I feel like these people are literally staring at reflections of their future selves and they're not heeding that warning. It's like the Christmas Carol has failed on all of these people. It's like, here is your future, Ebenezer. And it's like, got it. Cool. So which way do I go to get that? No, 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 no. You're mis no, you're you're getting me wrong. I'm, I'm saying don't go down that path. Oh, so I'm gonna go down that path. No, don't, don't no. It's like they they are they're aggressively making the same mistakes. And I think that's what makes this movie a brutal film. Like the fight scenes are not great, but that scene where Jeff Bridges breaks the bottle over Timothy Bottoms' face and head, that fight scene is so brutal to me. It feels so real. The sex scene in the pool hall, if you watch Grease or a lot of these coming-of-age high school films, you know, these moments are are fleeting or they're depressed, but these moments feel like, oh, did he lose his eye over this, like, dumb comment? Like, the, the boy who is a little bit slower gets hit by a bus off screen, so, but it's so, there's something about the naturalistic nature of the film and the fact that it it doesn't have a lot of uh, music bridging scenes that really, I think, makes these emotional beats land. And whether it's in a fight scene or if it's a sex scene, or it's even in, you know, Timothy Bottom seeing his dad at that Christmas party and then having 
nothing to say. And like, where have they been? Why have they been separated? We don't know. Yeah, I pulled that clip, actually, Timothy Bottoms running into his dad, because him mentioning that it's his dad goes by so fast. You can miss it. Like, and it seems like a nothing conversation. And in a way, this nothing conversation, these two men looking at each other and having nothing to say to each other is really the heart of the film. Because in that emptiness is where so much of the emptiness comes from. These two people who can't relate to each other and it should be a core, but the core is gutted. Hi, Sonny. Hi, Dad. How you doing? Okay. Well, that's good. See ya. Sure. And I want to pull a couple of threads together really fast. I mean, there's music in the back end of that scene, but to what you were just saying, I think that most of the worst scenes in this movie take place with no music. They are absolutely oh, dead silent. Like he makes you pulled just out even squirm. sound. Like yeah. he, like I, the, specifically the fight scene with the bottle and the sex scene. There's like zippers being unzipped, and it's. It, there's no sound. You can basically hear your heart beat. Yes. I mean, Sybil Shepherd taking her clothes off at the swimming pool. It's uh, just like, ah, like I'm crawling out of my skin when that happens. It's the least sexy thing that's positioned as like, if that was in an 80s teen movie, oh my gosh, it would be sexy and cool. And it would be, you know, and maybe it'd be funny and uncomfortable, but this was like, you know, they're just, everyone's normal. And it just is like, oh. It, 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 yeah. And he didn't cast hot, 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 hot chicks around the pool, which I respected too. He just yeah. cast normal people. Like yeah. they look like normal people. Everybody's got normal bellies. Everybody's normal. I mean, I think in the 80s teen movie, it would all be babes. Oh yeah. And he's trying to deglamorize all of that. I kept actually thinking about 80s teen movies watching this this time because, you know, the script really in so many ways feels like an 80s teen movie. Horny boys. You could just reduce it to horny boys and horny girls and Mrs. Graduates everywhere and, you know, Mrs. Robinson's from The Graduates. And I kept thinking like, oh, okay, Bogdanovich is influenced by all these directors of the past. And then the 80s teen comedy guys were probably influenced by The Last Picture Show. And they're like, what if we had a movie where like we took male angst really seriously about who's getting laid, but they just totally missed all of the the depth to it. I mean, there's elements dare I say, to American Pie in this film. You know, I think that that's another film that shows, you know, people trying to figure out exactly who they are and 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 changing their high school perceptions as they go to college. And I know that Bogdanovich wanted to cast a bunch of unknowns. And for the most part, he does that with the exception of, uh, you know, people like Clue Gallagher. But everyone here, this is their first big break. I mean, Cloris Leachman, this is like, you know, been around but didn't do anything major. Ellen Burstyn's going to make um, The Exorcist right after this, but she hadn't yet. You know, she was just, yeah. A lot of these people are like beloved TV people or but, minor figures, but this was their big deal. But yet he cast Sybil Shepard, who was a model, not an actress, because he saw her on the cover of a magazine. And, well, he was at the grocery store with his wife. Yes. Which and, he leaves out of the story now. Uh, and he sees this image the way that he sees her is the same way that our characters see her, which is like she is an escape. She is something. So I feel like it was such an interesting choice to cast essentially at this point in her career a model. You just cast a model. And that's very similar to like American Pie, right, when they had um, Shannon Elizabeth as this like beautiful, you know, Russian girl. Is she Russian in that movie? We have been informed from producer Josh that she is an exchange student from Czechoslovakia. All right. Perfect. So, by the way. 
I love that I am now <laughs> drawing lines between In the Heat of the Night and Beverly Hills Cop and Last Picture <laughs> Show and American Pie. These are my... Uh, okay, well, I don't know if this makes you feel better, but I kept thinking of um, Alicia Silverstone and Clueless watching this movie. Oh, interesting. Because so many of her mannerisms playing Cher, playing the beautiful blonde girl, I felt like felt very directly ripped from from Sybil Shepherd here. The kind of head tilts, the smiles. Oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of that DNA in that performance as well. By the way, though, back to Sybil Shepherd being cast, one of the stories he likes to tell is that he summoned her to his hotel room. She sat on the floor instead of in a chair. He had a rose in a vase that had come with his breakfast from room service. And then as they talked, she just kept kind of flicking the rose with her finger. And he thought, yeah, a woman who can decapitate a rose with her finger is a woman who can, like, destroy all the men of this town. And then as a director, he was kind of in the Clint Eastwood model when you hear about his style. He didn't like his people to do too many takes. He wanted them to do one, maybe two. He always thought the earlier takes were better than the later takes. Right. He's not at all like a uh, like a Kubrick type. Well, I and mean, one of the best sequences in the film, the Cloris Leachman monologue at the end, was the first and only take that she did of that scene. And it's, I mean, that scene is mind-bogglingly complex and beautifully performed, but one take. Should we play a clip of that now? Yes, sure. All right, let's play a clip of that now. So this is Cloris Leachman yelling at Sonny Crawford after he has come back to her because he's sobbing, he doesn't know where else to go because his friend Billy has just died. Billy being the slow kid introduced in the beginning who's sweeping the floor. Billy also being played by Timothy Bottoms' real-life brother. What am I doing apologizing to you? Why am I always apologizing to you, you little bastard? Three months I've been apologizing to you without you even being here. I haven't done anything wrong. Why can't I quit apologizing? You're the one ought to be sorry. I wouldn't still be in my bathroom if it hadn't been for you. I had my clothes on hours ago. You're the one made me quit caring if I got dressed or not. I guess just because your friend got killed, you want me to forget what you did and make it all right? I'm not sorry for you. You'd have left Billy, too, just like you left me. I bet you left him plenty of nights. Whenever J.C. whistled, I wouldn't treat a dog that way. I guess you thought I was so old and ugly, you didn't owe me any explanation. You didn't need to be careful of me. There wasn't anything I could do about you and her. Why should you be careful of me? You didn't love me. Look at me. Can't you even look at me? I walk, you can hear the TV in the background there, too. Just like this reminder of everything is hell when TVs are fun. <laughs> he also only did one take, by the way, of um, Sonny dragging his dead brother across the street. That was a one take thing. He told the crew ahead of time. He was like, treat this scene as though we're blowing up a bridge and it's the only bridge we've got. Do not screw it up. There's a, a famous story in here. Uh, you know, one of the actresses is like, well, how do you want me to do this scene? It's when, you know, Sybil Shepherd's mother catches her, you know, having an affair with her lover and she's got to come home. She's got to like coddle her. She's got to do all sorts of stuff. And she said, you know, to the director, she said, you know, how do I do this? And it's like five different beats here, all in like, you know, four lines. And, you know, how, how can I make all these switches? And he goes, just think it and the camera will get it. And she said it was the best piece of acting advice she ever got because you read all of it. it, it you just kind of – because it doesn't feel overperformed. Nothing feels performative. And and I think sometimes when you're on the first take, you're probably saying it in the least rehearsed way. Yeah, there's a lot of scenes in here where he just keeps the camera on somebody's face. 
as we get to watch them change their mind, mm-hmm. you know, without them even saying it out loud. And a lot of times to get that, like he was apparently not that liked on the set by other people, especially like the crew. He sequestered the crew from everybody because he was really worried about crew members or producers wandering in and giving his cast advice he didn't think they should hear. Like, wow. Sybil Shepard was basically told by a dude that her character should smile more. And he was like, hell no. And he banished the dude from the set. Wow. And he was furious about it. Furious about it. Because he wanted them to do it more like this, more naturalistically. I mean, the way I feel about him and Sybil Shepard in this film is that he's fascinated by her. And that he translates really well the idea of a whole town being fascinated by her. I get fascinated by her. He stares at her like this goddess. And I can't tell sometimes if I'm just projecting myself onto her to understand why she does what she does. There's a lot of stuff in here I don't quite understand why she does what she does. Like like wanting to be with the rich guy who treats her horribly when she did make this argument to her mom about how she believed in love earlier in the film that I believed in. Like I believe her when she tells her mom she wants to be... With Dwayne, for But real. then her mom's like, you know what? You don't know what you want. Look at me. And I think she thinks about her mom on that couch with her dad passed out asleep. And she's like, maybe she knows something. But unfortunately, her mom is not giving her really great advice either because, you know, her mom's like, don't fall in love with that guy. Fall in love with the rich guy. But she's unhappy. Maybe she did fall in love with the, you know, Dwayne or let that relationship play out without People are affecting each other in the wrong ways, which is, I think, more what life is to a certain degree. It's true. And I do like the fact that he lets the threads of life kind of fray mm-hmm. into the film. He doesn't tie everything up in neat bows. You know, there's a lot in here that I'm curious about. Like, why does Sam the Lion leave $1,000 to Joe Bob, the religious kid who gets his hair mussed up when they're in the schoolroom scene and then kidnaps the little girl later and makes her take off his panties? Like, why does he leave Joe a thousand bucks? It doesn't really ever come up again. And I was like, is Joe one of his secret kids? What Joe, What's happening here? And I like that I don't yeah. totally know. But well, it, yeah, like, what do you Joe think Bob keeps going showing on up with... enough that well, you think Joe there's Bob a reason. Well, Joe Bob is a kind of picked on. You see him get his hair messed up in the classroom. Then you see him at the Christmas party kind of getting like a little like taking his biscuit from his hand or whatever. You know, maybe he was like, take that thousand dollars, get out of here and go because you're always going to be this picked on person, this person that's not understood. And I mean, but then he, I don't know, is he a pedophile? What What's going on there? Yeah, I have no idea. I or don't is this mind. the only person that he can kind of connect with because she's not picking on him? I don't know. Yeah, I feel that Peter Bogdanovich is not always that aware of the emotions of like half the female characters. Um, the one that I'm, I'm, I want to talk about for sure is uh, the girlfriend that we have at the beginning, Charlene Duggs. Yeah. And not so much that he doesn't get her, but that he goes out of his way to make that just an unpleasant character with zero redeeming features. Every time she gets brought up by anybody else, they're like, Charlene, what a temperament. And that she's just so unpleasant. I don't know why he goes through the, the procedure of making sure that everything she does is absolutely terrible. Mm. He doesn't give her a soft moment ever. He sits down with her at the movie theater and she's like, you should give me a dollar for my movie ticket. Right. And she's just miserable. That That's one. And then the other one that I'm like, why did you go so far out of your way to dislike this character is um, the prostitute that they take uh, oh, young Billy yeah. to. Because they say that she's cheap and she's ugly. We see her. She's a very large woman in the back of his car. You know, so not only is she just sort of the town prostitute that he makes repulsive. But then she gets mad when Billy comes early, yeah. which in a way I would think she made her money 
faster. But that's just need to be like, I don't yeah. know. But he's like makes her so mad. Well, at also that. makes her so unsympathetic. Like she knows what she's dealing with the situation. It wasn't like, you know, it's like, yeah. yeah. But he makes her a so mad at that, that she punches Billy in the face so that he bleeds. And then, and then has like the capper line where she says, and I'm just going to use her words right here. As he puts the camera real full frontal confrontational right in her face, she's screaming at us. She says, idiots are as bad as Mexicans. And so it's just another character that every single beat about her, he makes horrible. And so I just, it to me, it pops out in a movie where everyone else, all the other women in this film, all the other men, all the other characters are so complicated. Right. That I'm just confused or putting a flag in, in those two characterizations, which just don't fit. Well, it's interesting. I think that he talked a lot about the character that Jeff Bridges plays. And in the book, he's like, the character is an asshole. And when I met Jeff Bridges, I wanted to cast him because he's so likable that if you cast a likable person as an asshole, they almost seem like they have more going on. And I wonder if that's the fault of the style of casting that he did in the role. Not to say those are bad actors. I don't think they are, but he may not have thought about those characters as much to make them as dynamic as our leads. Totally. And I mean, I'm not saying that I think the problem is just that, you know, that the prostitute and that Charlene are flat. It's that he just goes out of his way to make them awful. Right. Um, There's this kind of maybe whispery, rumory thing that Polly Platt helped him with the script. Okay. Because he he wrote it uh, along with Larry McMurtry. And it's hard to kind of tell, but to me, I do feel like there's a real strong advisory point of view in here from a woman who knows what's happening, especially right. in the characters of Restless Wives and Bored Wives. I yeah. mean, we do know that she was there giving him advice every step of the way, that she was a big part of it. And it's, yeah, I think maybe it's hard to know for sure because there's like this really interesting um, Q&A that he did for the 40th anniversary, like with AFI. And when Polly comes up on the stage and, you know, Sybil Shepard is on the stage as well as I think it's Cloris Leachman, when Polly comes up, Peter basically stops talking. He's like, oh, yeah, she was there. She did some stuff. And they're like, she was amazing. And the two women jump in and at this AFI thing talk about everything that Polly did. And then Peter just goes, well, that's I don't have anything to add to that. And so I am curious. I am curious how much Polly affected it because I think these women are terrific. Well, let me put one more spin on what you say because I don't disagree with you, but I'll throw a more like lofty idea in front of it because those two scenes that you specifically spoke about, you know, where the prostitute scene and the Charlene scenes, they're pretty much being seen through male eyes. And if I'm going to go out and say like, let me just put the best foot forward. Like maybe those scenes, because they're through the male perspective, they are looking at these women in this way. Whereas I would argue when you're with Ruth, she's kind of taking the reins, if that makes sense. Is that, or, you know, like it's sort of like these men are kind of so basic. They are only seeing them. I don't know. I don't know if I fully agree with what I'm saying, but I mean, like, I've heard, I've heard people say that that could be it. Okay. So I'll you're not off right. base. However, I do want to be fair because I think he also gives the same treatment to some male characters too. I mean, specifically Randy Quaid as rich kid Lester, like there's nothing appealing about him either. Oh, no. He makes him a monster. So it's strange that there's a couple characters that he doesn't really humanize. He's just a little misanthropic about them. It's interesting. These characters kind of service a larger story point for our main character. So maybe that's a reason why they're getting a little bit pushed aside. But there's an interesting similarity 
to Sybil Shepard's reaction to Abilene Mill when he comes in at her and you see her being a little bit scared. That same camera shot is used earlier with Randy Quaid when his face just kind of gets in the camera and he looks at you, you know, as the audience and you feel that moment. So it's... And also with the rich kid, I think, when he grabs her crotch when she's in yeah, the kitchen. It's interesting that those are the moments that we are most connected to her when she... I guess is most vulnerable. Because otherwise he does a couple strange things when he introduces her again in the classroom. Like we see her in the movie theater, but when we see her in the next scene, when all of the kids are at school, she's just relentlessly checking her makeup, checking her lipstick, yeah. checking it again, continuing to check it. She's doing nothing but checking it, which is, I almost felt like she was looking at herself in the mirror so much. It was kind of mean at that point that he just insisted she kept doing it. Like, what is she doing at that point? Like, right. Maybe it's because I am protective of Sybil Shepard a little bit, which we got into during Taxi Driver because she's always been accused of just being a model who can't really act, who can't, who's very flat. So to frame her as like extra superficial, not just the most beautiful girl in town who's mean, but like she can't stop staring at herself in the mirror. She's super, super vain. And his introduction of her feels a little unfair. You know, I think sometimes when people watch Sybil Shepard in a movie, they don't appreciate how much she's acting at being this type of girl. Yes, you know what I, mean? I totally agree. I think that the like the scene after her and Jeff Bridges uh, try to consummate their relationship and they can't, she's fantastic in that scene. Well, put your clothes on. You think I want to sit around here and look at you naked? No, you couldn't do it. Now I'm never going to not be a virgin. Why don't we tell everybody? The whole class knows. I just want to cry. I think you're the meanest boy I ever saw. My mother was dead right about you. I don't know what happened. Don't go out there. You can't have time to do it. They know. I don't want one soul to know. You better not tell one soul. You just pretend it was wonderful. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. Oh, if you say that one more time, I'll bite you. Totally. And having that so fresh in your heads, listen to this clip of her later when she's decided that she has set her sights on Sunny. She's going to win Sunny over. It's kind of like what we were talking about in The Heat of the Night, that one actress living her lines about being all hot and bothered at a cemetery really awkwardly. Yeah. Sybil Shepard here is doing that. She's like picking up this guy, picking up Sonny by making herself this passive, dumb girl. And I think people might not have distinguished that she's acting as a phony in that scene. Let's listen to her because you can hear how phony it is. Isn't it terrible, Sonny? Were you there? Did you see anything? Oh, weren't nothing to see except Ms. Clark. She had a gun. She might have killed us all. And Joe Bob didn't do nothing. Oh, you know he must have done something. It scares me to death. You just never can tell when something terrible is going to happen. It's okay. I got him now. I called you before. Did? Mm-hmm. I felt lonesome. Thought you might want to drive around a while. Well, I'm supposed to be someplace. I'm still a little scared. Please take me riding. That is her performing at being soft and vulnerable heroine girl. She's That's not who she is. She's doing that for him. Well, I mean, she also does it when she is seducing Abilene. And I, I do think there is something interesting happening with the men in the movie where, you, like we heard the, the conversation between Sonny and his dad. What I find really fascinating about Sonny is that you know, he is the one character who's not striving really for much more. He's not trying to get out. Yeah, he's he's kind of passive, as you said. To me, he's so perfectly Ty Sheridan. You know Ty Sheridan, that yeah, character? Mm-hmm. I love Ty Sheridan. I just feel like you could plop Ty Sheridan's face on this, and it is him. I think, Tony, I, I think it's great. But there are all these moments in the film that it builds into the script 
where Sonny is around somebody who knows much more about the world than Sonny does. And we see that Sonny isn't even going to ask a question about it. That right. Sonny, we see Sonny's incapability to understand people. You know, which I, I I respect that. I respect that they make a point of saying that Sonny is just too green to really have deep human emotions sometimes. Right. Because he does seem to age so much in this one year. Oh, yeah. So much. I mean, he's a very callow, passive, bad football playing kid, not trying hard. You, That's the point we, well, we really know about him at the beginning is he doesn't try hard to win at anything. You know, when Sam does that monologue at that lake that doesn't really have fish— and he kind of talks about his own life and what he lived. Is he telling the story of himself, which is also the story of Sonny, the person who stayed in the town, who did this? Yes, he lived this life, but is ultimately kind of an unhappy character. Let's listen to that. Can we listen to that monologue for a second? Yeah, I mean, this is the clip I pulled from it. It's a really long monologue. It's the one that they attribute basically as the monologue that won Ben Johnson, the Oscar. You, Ben Johnson being... A guy who was in a bunch of John Ford movies uh, who did not want to be in this film yeah. because he said it had way too much dialogue. And John Ford's like, ah, oh, he always says that. Yeah. And so uh, he kept saying no. He kept saying no to Bogdanovich. Finally, Bogdanovich got John Ford to call him. And what John Ford said that changed uh, his mind is he said, do you want to be the Duke sidekick all your life? And he was like, fine, fine, fine. So I'll do this role and I'll win an Oscar. And then after that, he made a point of saying, don't raise my rate. I just want to go back to what I'm doing. Wow. I'm not trying to be a fancy man. But uh, here's a clip of him talking. Old times. I brought a young lady swimming out here once. More than 20 years ago. It was after my wife had lost her mind. My boys was dead. Me and this young lady was pretty wild, I guess. And pretty deep. We used to come out here horseback and go swimming without no bathing suits. So there's so much that he says in this monologue. I know there's a little bit of it there. But I think in this moment, like I was saying before, he's like, you are me to Sonny. He's like, you, you're going to be me. And here he's kind of telling this tale that's it, it's not aspirational. It's a sort of like the same speech that Sybil Shepherd's mom gives Sybil Shepherd. It's like, this is what you have in store for you, this. You know, and it, it's not that grand. It's not that great. But the sooner you know it the better off you'll be. I mean, it's not saying you'll have this exact same thing, but I think it paints a picture of a life that he, thinking that Sonny will eventually live, and that's why he leaves in the pool hall. Like, you will become me. You'll take over. When I die, it will be you. Yeah, and what I love about the way that Bogdanovich shot that scene is he just holds it on his face. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a single take, but not only does he just hold it on him, he does this thing where he slowly zooms all the way right up into Sam the Lion and then slowly backs all the way out, too, as kind of the spell is broken a little bit as the other boys start to break in and talk as they're like, is marriage that bad? And he's like, well, yes. Yeah. And, you know, partway through that, the sun comes out, which is a little hard to see because it's black and white. But there's this little lightning of the screen. And you would almost think of that maybe as a problem, like, oh, no, the light right. changed. Oh, God, what are we going to do? But Bogdanovich was like, it is one of those beautiful accidents. You know, the sun kind of like blesses him as the speech takes a turn. The sun is blessing him. He's passing the cigarette to the next person. Like, here you go. Roll your own cigarette. Like, it's it's like he's ascending and he's, you know, passing the baton. Because yeah, then he basically just dies right yeah, after this. exactly. I mean, it is interesting that, that Sam the Lion is saying, well, this is what life is. Whereas JC's mom is like, don't do this. Do not do what I do. You know, one is saying, make peace. But in a weird saying, way, no. 
in a weird way, she's like, do what I do because she married the rich man. She's like, don't get involved with the the guy. Like she's not, you know, if she was to give good advice, it'd be like, get to college, get out of here, go, 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 like go, go, go. But she doesn't really say that. She doesn't really push her in that right direction. I mean, I don't think anyone's telling them how to get out of the lies that they're in because they would do it too. I think they don't know. That's true. Okay, it is time to welcome in our special guest. And to be honest, I don't know if they get more special than this. This is a gigantic bar because we are welcoming in Last Picture Show writer, director, massive film historian, everything, everything Hollywood. Everything Hollywood is summed up in this man. Guys, let's talk to Peter Bogdanovich. So, Peter, when the Last Picture Show comes out, it's huge, and you're called the next Orson Welles. As somebody who was before then a critic and a journalist and an interviewer, what was that year like when you went from being the person asking the questions to being interviewed all the time? Well, it's a valid question, but it's something you're leaving out, which is not unusual because everybody leaves it out, which is the fact that I was acting professionally. I was involved in about 40 stage productions, either as an actor or as a director, before I ever made a film and before I was known as a critic. The only thing I ever studied in show business was acting. <laughs> with Stella Adler for four years. So does having such a background in acting, what do you feel like that brought to the table when you started directing yourself, especially with The Last Picture Show? Directing for me is kind of an outgrowth of acting because I used to make a joke and I said, why did you become a director? I said, so I could play all the parts because uh, I'm greedy. But that is only partially a joke. Uh, I, 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 I often direct the actors by giving them something as an actor. When I'm going to direct a scene, many times I'll walk through it myself to see what I would do as an actor in the scene. Then I can direct them, you know? Yeah, I'd love to ask sort of a, maybe a ridiculous or like kind of an indelicate question, but you know, the original book of Last Picture Show, you know, Larry McMurtry wrote this scene where Duane and most of the boys in the town have sex with a cow. And, you know, you mentioned that here in a throwaway line, but I was wondering, like, did you debate keeping that scene in and having that scene in for real? Uh, we thought about it. I think it was in one of the drafts. I think Orson was horrified by that. <laughs> and uh, I think that that's when we took it out. So Orson is responsible both for the black and white and also the lack of heifer scene? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> He's the one who told me why I should shoot in black and white. I had been thinking about shooting in black and white, but I didn't think they'd let me. And um, I, I was thinking about it would work better with black and white because of the period. But then when I spoke to Orson, we were talking about depth of field and how to keep everything sharp. But the black and white is the actor's friend, as he put it. And I said, why do you say that? He said, because every performance, he said, looks better in black and white. Name me a great performance in color. And uh, so I, I, I said, well, I don't know if they'll let me. He said, have you asked? And I asked Bert Schneider, and he said, go ahead. You know, what was the Oscar race like that year, by the way, with like you and William Friedkin you know, also competing for the French Connection? Yeah, Billy was at the French Connection. And we had eight nominations uh, for Picture Show. And I didn't realize it at the time, but when you're, when you're up for an Oscar, it's like running for office. And you have to sort of play along with the, the rules of the game, so to speak. And I didn't. Not because I was being uh, contrary. I just didn't realize that when you're, an Oscar, when you're nominated for an Oscar, 
It's like running for president. <laughs> it's a political <laughs> maneuver. So, for example, when I did the talk shows or TV talk shows or radio, they would say to me, what do you think is the best film of the year? And I'd say, last picture show, but it won't win. Why not? Because the best film never wins. That was an absolute time <laughs> to make me lose because the Academy members said, oh, really? You son of a bitch. And so they voted for Billy. I mean, and Billy, when he was asked what the best film of the year, he'd say the last picture show. When he saw me at the governor's ball after the Oscars, he said, Peter, Peter, you're going to win a thousand of these. And he hugged me and hit me in the head with the Oscar. <laughs> and I thought, okay, Billy, okay, relax. As a person who's been such a scholar of classic Hollywood and knew so many of the major figures of classic Hollywood when they were when they were there, when you could talk to them, did you like the label New Hollywood as applied to yourself, or did you want did you see yourself as something else? I didn't care about it. It didn't bother me. When you're in the middle of in the midst of a gigantic historical shift, you're not necessarily aware of it. I wasn't aware of it at the time. I mean, I wasn't really aware of it. I didn't didn't keep me awake or make me wonder. It just happened, you know, and, and there I was with one foot in the old Hollywood because I knew all those people, like Ford and Hawks, and, and yet I was trying to make films in the new Hollywood. And, um, but I didn't really notice it at the time. I notice it now, of course, I look back on it, it's quite obvious. The golden age of Hollywood, so to speak, ran from somewhere around the middle of the teens uh, until about 1962. I, 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 figure, I, I always figure the end of Hollywood was when they killed Bugs Bunny. They didn't make any more Bugs Bunny cartoons. <laughs> and that was the end of, that was the, end of the classic. classic <laughs> what do you want to see happen next to Hollywood right now, in 2019? Make a good movie. <laughs> I remember when they used to make quite a few good movies. Now, it's, you're lucky if you see one that's good. I, I'm a, not a big fan of super movies, or superheroes, or special effects and now that they can do anything in special effects they can do anything it doesn't it's not very interesting because you just say oh that's a special effect it's a trick one of the great things about movies which is under understated these days is that they were a recording of something they were a, a, a it's like being there because you watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing or Gene Kelly or any of the great uh, musical dancers uh, it's really happening. They're doing it. That That is not fake. That's not special effects. They're doing that, what they're doing. And you watch it. I watched, we switching channels and we ran across Top Hat the other day. Not a great movie, but the numbers between Ginger and Fred are, are extraordinary. And there's usually no cut. And you just think to yourself, Jesus, that really happened. They did that. One of the things I like best about the golden age of Hollywood, so to speak. What, what was great about that period as far as the actors are concerned is that they all had a, all the stars, the real big movie stars like Cagney and Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and um, Cary Grant and, and all the great stars, had a persona that, that they played on, played throughout their careers, so that in, at their best, they didn't seem to be acting. They seemed to be existing. So Bogart in The Big Sleep or, or uh, To Have and Have Not, doesn't seem to be acting. Yet, whereas in, in African Queen, he's definitely acting. Kane Mutiny's acting. Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he's acting. He's not a bad actor, but I'd rather see him be Bogart. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
I do. And John Wayne, same thing. People say, oh, just John Wayne's just doing the same old performance. But that, that's what the point was, that it was sort of these actors became real people. I like that. Now, that all came about because of two things. One was the collapse of the studio system, which was unfortunate because it was very effective and very uh, smart. Not that they only made good movies. They made a lot of shit, but they also made a lot of good movies. <laughs> and um, the other thing was that Brando came along, and Marlon didn't want to be typed. Uh, he, wanted to, he wanted to act. And he said he had studied with Stella Adler, who encourages performances. She's a great, a great teacher. I'm not putting her down, but it was it was different. Uh, and Marlon wanted to to be different in picture picture after picture, and and because he became such a big star, and was so brilliant, all young actors wanted to be like Marlon. Does that work for directors? Do you feel like directors should work in a vein that suits them the best, or do you think directors do their better work when they're expanding and doing all sorts of different stuff. No, I think a director, uh, the thing that I like about directors like Hawks or Hitchcock or Ford, they're very personal, the films. Now, Fred Zinnemann was not a bad director, but you, you don't know who Fred Zinnemann is. You can see all his pictures and you don't know who he is. And you don't really care. But with John Ford, you, you see some of his pictures, you see, oh, well, that's, that's Ford. Or Hawks. They have certain things that interest them and they're there from picture to picture even Hitchcock well Hitchcock's the most obvious one because he always did crime dramas I mean what about for yourself then being how aware of that were you with yourself then while guiding your own career like, I tried to make pictures basically that interested me and that I could do something with that I was, I was interested I also tried to not repeat myself in terms of the kind of picture I was making in fact my my Championing films like films by Hawks and Hitchcock and so on were for exactly that reason. I wanted people to like those kind of movies because I was going to want to make those kind of movies. Movies that were personal to me and not just well made. I like that. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. By the way, I, I would just love to know about that period when you and Sybil were roommates with Orson. Oh, well, Orson lived at, uh, came and lived at our house where Sybil and I were living in Bel Air. And he, he, I asked him if he wanted a place to stay when he came back to Hollywood. And he said yes, and so we invited him to stay in our house. It was quite funny. Orson was, sort of took over most of the house. <laughs> One time, Sybil was walking past the Orson's uh, part of the house, and uh, she smelled something burning. And she said, Orson, uh, I smell something burning. Are you all right? I'd just like a little privacy, please. <laughs> Things fine for privacy. She said, but I smell something burning. You all right? I'm fine. Uh, please give me some privacy. Later in the afternoon, the housekeeper says to me, Mr. Mr. Peter, I think that Mr. Wells had an accident. Well, I said, what do you mean? And she held up a, a, a white terry cloth robe. He had put his lit cigar into his pocket of his terry cloth robe and it caught fire. <laughs> so he threw it into the bathtub but missed the bathtub and part of it got onto the carpet in the bathroom and that caught on fire a little bit and Orson said he would replace the carpet and so on he never did but um, <laughs> a couple of days after that he gave Sybil a present a very beautiful 
color illustrated book about opera. Sybil is a big fan of opera. Inside, he had drawn a picture of a house burning <laughs> and, um, and a ladybug in the foreground screaming. And, and underneath it, he'd written, Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home. Your house is on fire, and so is your house guest. Love, Orson. <laughs> is it true he ate a lot of fudge sickles? Oh, yeah, he loved, he loved, he loved ice cream. One day, he finished in four quarts of haagen Wow. Because there were four quarts of haagen we went to sleep, and when we woke up, there was one left with a small amount at the bottom. I said, somebody <laughs> ate all the ice cream. Or says, I didn't. He was like a big kid a lot of times. You know, I wanted to ask, I know I have to let you go, but you you said that the final scene of, of Last Picture Show, the final scene between Lois and, and um, Sonny, is... The reason why you wanted to make the movie, but I was wondering, you know, if today, if there's another scene in there that doesn't get talked about as much, that is one of your other personal favorites. Uh, when I say I wanted to make the picture because of that scene, it's a very powerful scene, and she did it brilliantly. And that was the first take, actually. And she kept saying she could do it better, and I said, no, you can't. Because the emotion was very real and very first-time emotion what Ford used to call the first-time emotion. Well, but I like the, the scene by the tank dam with Ben Johnson when he talks about taking a girl swimming there. Mm -hmm. That In the book, that was different. In the book, he talked about it. Uh, Sam the Lion, Ben Johnson's character, talks about that incident, but he talks about urinating from the top of a bridge or something. And I said, Larry, this is not romantic. Write something romantic to, that he can talk about. And that's when he wrote the thing about the horse, riding the horse across the dam. That isn't in the book, in the movie. I like that better. By the way, do you feel like Citizen Kane being number one at the list is correct and where it should be? Well, I mean, if you're going to pick the greatest movie ever made, which is pretty tough to do, because you leave out so much, you know. I don't like those lists, because... It's not the greatest film ever made. How do you know? Why isn't um, Rio Bravo the greatest film ever made? I mean, I love it more. I, I watch it more often. Um, it's 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 a it's a great film. But Orson's Chimes of Midnight is just as good. A couple of his films are certainly as good as Citizen Kane. I think one of the reasons Citizen Kane gets so much attention is because it also fucks around with the construction. The construction of the film is, is very unusual and very well done because it's, it's uh, you know, all those interviews and so on. The construction is very unusual for that time. So it's, it's kind of, it looks like a great film. <laughs> and um, it, I certainly could not, I'm not one to knock it. I love the film, but I love other films as much. Well, Peter, it's been really fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us today. All right, well, nice to talk with you. Good luck. Well, Amy, let's talk about the the year in which this movie comes out. I know we've talked a lot about how it bridges the gap between the past and the future. This is another one of those years in the Academy Awards where you really see that separation. You know, we're talking about this film getting nominated for Best Picture in a time against The French Connection, Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof, and Nicholas and Alexandra, which is like a 
a movie about a Russian czar starring Laurence Olivier, only the one that's not memorable really on that list. French Connection is wins. And I would argue, you know, based on our previous conversation, I like the French Connection a lot, but I don't think it's in the caliber of a Clockwork Orange or The Last Picture Show in, 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 any, in any way. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I think all of these movies are really complicated and prickly and not easy to love. I bet like, I bet the Laurence Olivier movie was a lot easier to love. I haven't seen it though. I'm just guessing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that French Connection won because it feels like putting your your toe in the water and seeing how it feels. Because like, it is gritty. It's 70s, but it's not two 70s. You know, it 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 seems like the vote has kind of split here because Fiddler on the Roof probably is the one that you would think would win. I wonder Freak if can- so many of these films like split the vote between each other being in the same like bold niche, like people couldn't quite get it together. Like it would be like if uh, we lived in the great Oscar world, we're sorry to bother you and the favorite were two of the Oscar challengers and I wouldn't quite know who would want to win. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated looking at these types of years like this, because when you think back on the best in cinema, I think easily you're going Clockwork Orange, Last Picture Show, and then French Connection, or, you know, some version of that, you know, not that those are the top three, but that that's the ones that stick out. Yeah. I mean, although Bogdanovich wins the, you are now the next Orson Welles point, which is what everybody started to call him when this film came out, which I think is kind of funny because Orson Welles, you know, he talked to him a lot. He gave him a ton of advice, as you were saying. He convinced him to make the first major black and white movie that had been made in four years. And Orson Welles still always referred to uh, the last picture show as that dirty picture. He just thought it was too nude and he wasn't like that supportive of it. He was always just making fun of it to Bogdanovich. And John Wayne did the same thing. John Wayne was like, oh, that's a dirty picture. But good job, kid. (laughs) All right, now we're talking about this film. It's number 95 on the list. It is a a movie that was not on the original AFI's top 100 list. Um, And it's just kind of sneaking in here. It's just four above Ben-Hur. What do you think? Like, what do you think? Do you think it's too low? Do you think it's rightly placed? I'm glad it's here. I wonder if what dings it a little is that it, can sort of play or maybe it inspired too many sex comedies i don't Mm. i don't know i don't really know if i believe that even as i'm saying it honestly i recently saw you know spectacular now and the perks of being a wallflower you know i'm i'm older but i still respond to them and we talked about eighth grade great films but then you can also talk about the breakfast club or ferris bueller's day off like there's so many welcome to the dollhouse i feel like i'm shaped and scarred by welcome to the dollhouse oh 100 i mean book breakfast club and heathers and you know I know people who love 10 Things I Hate About You. You know, there's so many of these films. If we're talking about the best coming of age, I think it's so based in what kind of clicked with you. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's universal. I, I, so are you saying you think this is the coming of age of a lot of people who are of the age to be voting right now? Sort of the I way that they keep. Yeah. Because there is this thing where Bogdanovich is part of that major click. Right. You know, and he made a point of ev- all of the famous directors that he knew he invited them to the premiere of this he was he was anointed as part of the club when he's 31 which is amazing as this bridge between old and new and you're right he's the bridge to the old and he's the bridge to the new and the new people really love this film for so many reasons because they're the right age yeah and and look this is the first time i saw it i absolutely loved it but if you were to say to me the Breakfast Club versus this. I would love to have that conversation. And I'm sure people could fight for American Pie over this, you know, or Clueless over this. I could maybe fight for Clueless over this. I, yeah. I, 
I like this better than Stand By Me. What I'm, about the outsiders over this? Oh, that's tough. But have you ever followed Essie Hinton on Twitter? I have not. You really should. She okay. has the best Twitter profile ever. The, the woman who wrote um, The Outsiders. Right. Every Friday, she just goes, Margarita's House Writers Club. It's Margarita Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I got to do it. I mean, last year, Lady Bird made such a splash. And I, I, I responded to that film as well. I Well, then maybe what we should put a pin in is for when we get to The Graduate. Okay. To say if these are both coming-of-age films about men being brought into maturity by older women. Do we need Ooh. both of them from this same time period? Well, I would love to get into that debate. Uh, but first, I have two questions to ask. Number one, Amy, did everyone love this movie? Most people did. Most okay. people really love this movie. I mean, I found some reviews of it that just opened with, this is a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, wow. people adored it. I did find one who didn't like it, though. Okay. We've heard his name before. Stanley Kaufman of The New Republic. Oh, yeah. And I really loved his intro because he's wrestling with his dislike of this movie. He's wrestling with his complicated feelings. Dislike isn't the right word. This is how he opens his review. So many things in Peter Bogdanovich's second film are so good that I wish I liked it more. Worse, I feel ungrateful. Caddishly, I am unsatisfied. So he's already saying, I feel bad that right. I don't believe yeah. that, that I don't love this as much as everyone else. Um, he's One of his main problems is that he says, in order to define the end of a period in a hero's life, things are made to happen. So he felt that there were too many mechanics driving this maturity. He points out, you know, that Sam dies, that a kid gets run over by a truck, that everybody else has all these miseries that sort of happen. He writes, heavy hands are making the calendar turn over. And he says he suspects that the justification might be, but that's the way it really happened. And if so, it only proves that life is no artist. His big problem, though, is with Timothy Bottoms as the hero. This is what he says about Timothy Bottoms. There's nothing drastically wrong with him other than it takes 20 minutes to sort him out in appearance and language from his best friend, Jeff Bridges. Bottoms is genuine enough. He's simply not good enough. He never opens up anything. He never surprises. He's never really touching. The most I could feel about him was that he was never false, which is not enough. And that's a model of what's finally the problem with this whole picture. It all seems true enough, but almost every scene reminds us vaguely of something we've seen before and have generally seen better. And I flag that part of it because... I think that is interesting when you see a film that you like but feels too referential to the films that inspired it. Yeah. You know, you hear that criticism of Tarantino's films. Right. You heard of a film I actually kind of liked a little, not a loved, but of, of Bad Times at the El Royale that came out recently. People oh, were yeah. Like, oh, it's too Tarantino. So whenever a film, you see the people that inspired that film to be made and you can pinpoint them out, sometimes I feel like people roll their eyes. And I wonder if that was happening here to Stanley Kaufman. But I don't disagree with what he says about Timothy Bottoms. I think if better cast, maybe that character pops in a bigger way. I do agree that that character is truthful and, and naturalistic, but I was not captivated by him as much as I was, I would arguably say, with every other main character in the film. I He didn't resonate that much to me. And even in the scenes with Ruth, where he is having this relationship, I found her to be the one that was like pulling me through. Maybe he is us. And so he's a little bit less than everybody else, but his eyes had a secret that he never told us what it was. And and then I kind of realized, oh, maybe his eyes don't have a secret. Maybe that's just the way he is being shot. You know, it's interesting because Bogdanovich would agree. Like what he's kind of been a little blunt in interviews later on being like, I wish I hadn't cast that kid. Mm -hmm. I wish I'd cast this other kid who was the runner-up instead. Which was uh, John Ritter. Which was John Ritter, yeah. And the thing for me is I usually agree with that, but for some reason in this case, 
I almost don't want to like Sonny more. And I think I might have liked him more if he was cast by John Ritter. I think I might have felt more about him. My favorite scenes with Timothy Bottoms really are when he's with Ruth and she's crying in bed or she's barely speaking to him and giving him a Dr. Pepper and then crying at the table and his absolute young confusion. Right. I find that really touching. So I think if he was a- Right, because he's a real teen. Right. He wouldn't know how to deal with that. He's he not smart alecky. He's not ahead of the game. He's a doofus. He's a football playing Texas doofus. Yeah. So for me, I feel like his passiveness works in a way that usually I wouldn't think it would work. You right. get annoyed when I feel like an actor makes me do too much to draw something out of them. But yeah. I, he fits to me. Uh, it's interesting. And I mean, I would argue, too, there is something to be said for the way that this movie is often advertised. It's it's much more Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepard uh, on all the kind of images that you see of this film. Exactly. Um, I mean, speaking of that, is this a good moment to play the trailer for the sequel? To okay. Last Can I Joe? just get into this? Yes. <laughs> so we've talked about this movie. And I think the things that we can pull out from it is the beauty and its starkness, the lack of music, except for like from real sources. Every time you hear music in this movie, it's from a real, you know, coming out of a TV being played live. It was very interesting to do at the time. Um, The brutality, the emotionality of this movie. We've talked about all these things that make this movie heavy, but yet familiar. And now... 20 years later, they make a sequel. They reunite pretty much the entire cast and take a listen to this. High school sweethearts, Dwayne Jackson and J.C. Farrow, going to the picture show and going all the way. Oh, quit prison. I don't think you did it right anyway. 20 years after the Academy Award-winning last picture show, it's a whole new ball game. Dwayne's a millionaire oil man. Carla, his beautiful wife. And guess who just came back to town? Don't I know you from somewhere? Jeff Bridges. JC, I'm Dwayne Jackson. We went together in high school for a while. Sybil Shepard. Did I have you madly in love? Madly. Cloris Leachman. You're scared to fall in love with her again, aren't you? I don't know why we're even talking about this. Annie Potts. If I go looking for trouble, doesn't mean I want any husband but you. William McNamara. Who were you sleeping with that Billy Ann found out about? Well, I'm Mrs. Nolan. Hey, Mrs. Marlowe. Timothy Bottoms. I think we're all crazy now. I don't think I'm crazy. I admit just about everybody else is. And Randy Quaid. My wife's about to bear you a grandchild. I might be pregnant. Your old girlfriend's about to bear me a child. I think I'm pregnant. And unless I'm very lucky, I'm headed for prison. Somebody must be making a fortune off fertility drugs in this county. Texasville. Women have a heartless side to them, don't they? This whole town is heartless. From the director of Mask and Paper Moon (laughs) and the author of Lonesome Dove and Terms of Endearment, Texasville. Coming soon to a theater near you. Now, Amy, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, uh, and I wouldn't judge a movie by its trailer, but holy shit, come on. I would judge a movie by its trailer. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, our engineer, Devin, uh, Devin, you love this movie. Did you see Texasville? I have, unfortunately, seen Texasville. All right, so is that trailer representative of what Texasville is? Uh, 100%. It's exactly (laughs) what it looks like. It's ridiculous. It It, also seems like a weird thing that he's a millionaire 
Like what? Like and Randy Quaid is a main character uh, who's like a part. What is going on? Almost the only good thing about it is that they add Annie Potts to the cast, who looks like the best part of that. She trailer. is. She's funny throughout the whole movie. She's funny. The whole movie. It just doesn't know what it is. It's horrible. And and Larry McMurtry, who wrote the original book of the Last Picture Show, wrote the sequel too. So it's like. Eh. Oh, boy. <laughs> I wanted to watch it last night, but I couldn't find it anywhere. It really? is like it's not available. I mean, I searched uh, a bunch of different places. So thank you, Devin, for You're letting welcome. us yeah. know. <laughs> but don't bother. Don't bother. <laughs> it's just so funny how you could miss it that much. It's like when we talk about like these movies that are make these big jumps and then how they go in a very different direction. It's really bizarre. Um is there a Simpsons yes. is what you want to ask mm-hmm. me now? Yeah. You know where it's funny? Uh-huh. I have an absolute nonsense compar- conspiracy theory that is not true, uh, but I'm just going to pretend like it is. If you would ask me a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, hey, Amy, is there a Simpsons? I would have had to say no, but there is what? an episode of The Simpsons. The very first episode of The Simpsons of 2019 has a Last Picture Show reference. Whoa. I know. It, the Whoa. most recent episode. Um, it's in an episode called Mad About the Toy. Uh, the setup of this is that Grandpa Simpson, he used to be a toy model for Army soldiers back in the day. Um, the man who took his picture for the toy is uh, gay, and Grandpa Simpson got him fired. And now he goes to Marfa to make it right to try to apologize to the man that he got fired for being gay. Uh, they go to Marfa, Texas, where, you know, there's a fake Prada store. They wander through the small town. And here, you can listen to Grandpa Simpson talking. And as he's talking, he walks by a movie place that is just called, at the top, the next to the last picture show. There's a handsome man in Texas that I'm going back to see. He was supposed to take my picture, then he got sweet on me. Now, here's my conspiracy theory, which I know is totally fake. I just okay. want to pretend that it's true. I would like to imagine that the writers of The Simpsons are aware that we look for them, that we look for a Simpsons for every movie, and they're like, oh, God, we don't have one for Last Picture Show. Let's just shove it in. That's I, not true, probably, but I just but want to say that You it know is. what? I know that animation works in a very quick turnaround, so I bet you it is true. I bet you it is. <laughs> I bet you it's happening. Print the legend. Either way, <laughs> that was just too creepy and too perfect. It made me happy. Um, well, you know, I think a lot of the people in this movie are really well-known, kind of household names, um, except for... The lead, and we talked a little bit about this lead. You know, we talked about Timothy Bottoms. Amy, uh, what has he been up to? Timothy Bottoms and his brother Sam Bottoms, uh, who plays his brother here. By the way, we've seen Sam Bottoms before. Do you remember? Oh, right. That's an evil pop quiz, I'll just tell you. No, was he in Apocalypse Now? He was. He is uh, Surfer Lance. Yes. Okay, yeah, there we go. Have, so Surfer Lance is back. He's Billy, the kid who gets hit by the car. Uh, Timothy Bottoms... He's gone on to have a long career, but one of the things he has specialized in is playing the president, George W. Bush. He's played George W. Bush three times, including this TV show. He's the president in residence. He's kind of in charge. He's got the whole country saying, that's my Bush. Life is hard. That's the price of fame. When you're president, everyone knows your name. Hey, what's that thing? It's my Bush. I can't believe he's actually in the White House. That's our money. Now, I kind of knew this 
in a weird way because the last movie we did on how did this get made before the holidays was Holidays in Handcuffs, which is a Melissa Joan Hart, uh, Mario Lopez, ABC Family uh, Christmas classic. Um, and the entire time I was like watching this movie, I'm like, who is that guy who looks like W? And I found out he was in the last picture show. I was like, well, can't wait to watch that. And then we watched this. And it's such an interesting trajectory that his career, in many ways, is probably the most interesting uh, out of everyone in this film. It's true. And actually, you know, this is probably a good moment to kind of put a button on the Zocahedron's run of Westerns, which we've had, which is, you know, we're back in Texas, a film about Texas. George Bush, by the way, I'll just take this moment because I always like to take it. George W. Bush is not from Texas. And as a Texan, I spent many years while he was president having to tell, no, he's from Connecticut. His accent's not real. (laughs) I would 100% say his accent is not real. Don't represent my state. Um, Think about this representation of Texas that we have here in Last Picture Show with where we started with the searchers. You know, the searchers is all huge landscapes bright yellow colors, you know, this vision of Texas that's not even shot in Texas. Yeah. And here we have a movie shot in Texas, black and white, gray, a different, more realistic view to me in a way. And in contrast to all this bright sun footage that we get in The Searchers, listen to the sound of how The Last Picture Show opens. Even listening to the wind in this, I just kept thinking that this Texas reminds me almost more than anything of Kansas in uh, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I love to end the show on like some nice cold wind footage. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I just I like I respect this view of Texas because this is yes. a little bit closer to the Texas that I know personally. I, like of all the Western iconic iconography that we've been wrestling with. This is it. This is the one that feels most most true to me. And so I just want to say that I think it's interesting that this view of Texas is made by a person who's, you know, from a Yugoslavian immigrant family from New York, not from Texas. And when he made this movie, he says that he had never even heard of who Hank Williams was. Right. The man who's on the soundtrack the whole way, the whole way around. And he said he approached Texas as though he was going to a foreign country. And I think you see that. I think he did oh, a really good job. I think yeah. I think he listened to what Texas was so much that you hear him in it. You know, the radio DJ that you hear escorting us through Texas? Yeah. It's Bogdanovich. He is the voice of Texas. And I want to say, well done. I love it. All right, Amy, let's roll this Zoe Decahedron and see where it takes us next. Okay. It is time to roll the die. It's time to roll the die. You know what, Paul? I want to announce it this time. So here I go. It is 16, which is... (gasps) Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard, it is time for Sunset Boulevard. Okay. Okay, 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 okay. So even if you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard, here's what I'm thinking for our call to action. Because I am guessing you know the most famous line in Sunset Boulevard. It is when Gloria Swanson walks down the stairs, looks at the camera and says, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. So let's take that moment and put it today. Today, today, in our modern era of 2019. I want you guys to imagine... Who you would want to be doing your close-up as you walk down the stairs. Insert name of director here. And you know what? Because I'm feeling generous, you can even pick an older director if you really, 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 really want to. If someone dead, their ghost can direct a movie. Anybody can do a movie now with iPhones. So give us your best Sunset Boulevard tagline. Call us at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And I'll say I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Shear. Talk to you guys then. Bye. Thank you.